This is Laura Deirdre with the Becker's Cardiology and Heart Surgery Podcast. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Jonathan Ledger, Director of Cardiovascular and Pulmonary Rehabilitation at the UPMC Heart and Vascular Institute. Jonathan, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Thank you, Laura, so much for inviting me. I'm glad to be here. Before we dive into the questions, could you tell us a little bit more about yourself and your background? Yeah, I started in this field about 30 years ago. Um, as a uh, clinical exercise physiologist. I have a master's degree from the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center uh, from the University of Pittsburgh. And we worked in the field as a clinician for six years, then ran and started my own um, uh, outpatient cardiac rehab program. Um, While I was a clinician running an outpatient program, um, I got a master's in organizational leadership and was promoted to director of cardiac services for a small health system. Um, I ran inpatient nursing units and and all of cardiology for about six years and then got back into my core business about 13 years ago um, working for UPMC. And it currently run inpatient and outpatient cardiac rehab, uh, pulmonary rehab, and vascular rehab for five uh, hospitals in our health system. Got it. That's fascinating. So is this something that, you know, you set out to do um, to become one of the leaders or, or the director of cardiovascular and pulmonary rehabilitation, someone at that level? Was administration always in your um, career mindset or, or, you know, did you start off thinking something different and then take advantage of opportunities that were presented to you? It's really interesting that you asked. My focus was patient care entirely when I first got started. I was just interested in in helping the patient that was in front of me get the best possible outcomes they could from the care that I had learned to provide um, and didn't have any intention at all of being uh, in management. Um, My director at that time, who was nationally recognized leader in the field, um, saw that I had some leadership potential and just said, hey, would you like to run a program, a new program we're starting in the eastern side of the state um, and um, recommended me for the job. And so that was my introduction to management and um, found out that I was capable and just could continue to kind of prove myself at different levels and then just kept getting promoted until I was director of cardiovascular services for the for health system. Um, and I st- Still love patient care more than anything else. So now, now that I'm directing, in so many ways, a smaller area, have fewer employees than I've had in the past. I'm able to really focus on operations, and it's been it's been pretty pretty awesome experience. Um, both being able to kind of innovate and do some different kinds of things to help patients recovering from cardiovascular events, but also to uh, to innovate around um, um, with with the pandemic and everything that's gone on right now. Um, to just do some creative things to to make it more effective. That's fantastic to hear. And so obviously you mentioned the pandemic, something that really um, had a lot of healthcare workers, you know, made them change course in the past year. Um, there's been a lot to, that went on because of the pandemic. And now, you know, we're hopefully on the other side of things um, before too long. But from your perspective, you know, what really made sure that you and your teams were able to be successful in the past year? And, you know, how do you see some of your priorities evolving um, going forward? Yeah, the first thing I can say, as soon as the, as soon as the pandemic hit and everybody started making adjustments within the health system, um, it became clear that we were going to need to close our outpatient centers. Um, so right away, I sat down with a team of uh, people that, that are close, that I work close, most closely with within the system 
to work out a way to continue to reach patients recovering from cardiovascular events uh, remotely. So we had 136 patients at UPMC Shadyside that suddenly became uh, virtual patients. Um, we Most of our interaction with them after they left, the gym was closed, was over the phone. And we would just call and ask them how they were doing and how they were recovering and are you exercising and how are you exercising. It was just a conversation to, to help them continue to stay on track until we were in a position where we could open up again and invite them back. Um, and then around that, then we began to build um, certain elements into that program. We sent them resistance bands to their house. We sent um, educational flyers on topics like hypertension and hyperlipidemia and things we would normally have educated to them in person, encouraged them to visit a national website to to watch videos and to gain education and knowledge through those things. And just whatever I could get my hands on to, to get in front of them to, uh, to help um, is what we did. And my crew here just came together. I mean, they just said, okay, we need to do this. This is the right thing to do. And the hospital supported it. Um, fortunately, continued to pay my staff, even though our gym was closed. And um, and then as quickly as possible, we figured out a way to bring people back safely. And, and within about um, uh, four to six weeks, we were able to open back up again, space everyone differently, and just run the, the, the center a little differently. That's, that's fantastic to hear. And so, you know, obviously, um, is there anything from that time that you're taking and applying to, you know, um, the post-pandemic or that you'll keep around, um, you know, far after is necessary? Yeah, so um, let me give you a little bit of background on cardiac and pulmonary rehab to kind of put my next comments in perspective. Um, cardiac Rehab has been extensive, has been studied now for more than 50 years. And um, in 2009, a big publication came out in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology that showed that when patients participate in cardiac rehab compared to patients that don't, there is a 21 to 34% drop in mortality five years after they participated in an average of 24 visits. So they literally come to this thing, they do this little boot camp, this 20, several week boot camp, we let them go, and five years later, there's a, a, a monumental drop in, in the number of people that die um, as a result of their participation in cardiac rehab. Um, despite the fact that it makes that big a difference, only 20% of the patients in this country who qualify for cardiac rehab participate in cardiac rehab. So watching, having had experiences in lots of different levels of healthcare, uh, including all of cardiology and then running nursing, inpatient nursing units, including an intensive care unit for six years, and kind of watching the way healthcare is delivered, um, I became really concerned that something is really broken in this system. If you've got an effective treatment of secondary prevention, that's what cardiac rehab is, it's a form of secondary prevention. You get somebody with a chronic disease and you try to prevent them from having a future event or you get them to live longer with the chronic disease that they have. And you've proven pretty definitively that it provides this great a benefit in mortality and you can't create a system to make sure everybody gets there or nearly everybody has a chance to get there. Something is broken in the system. And so I've, I've kind of worked from that frame of reference um, for the last 13 years at UPMC, trying to help physicians mainly, but, but, but administrators also, to gain an understanding of just how significant a service this could be to the patients we serve. And fortunately, have seen um, 
on average about a 6% growth a year in our volumes um, since that time by just helping to give people, help people gain an understanding of these things and help patients feel more confident that what we're doing matters, that this thing called exercise, these, these small changes you make in your lifestyle that affect your eating habits and help you to lose weight um, will affect whether you live or die. And my team has just come right along with me. <laughs> it's been it's been a wild ride. That's great to hear. That's great to hear. Now, uh, you know, what are some of the biggest challenges that you're facing today? So, in order to in order to achieve the ends that I just described, um, I knew that we had to maximize the use of technology. So, one of the first things that I did after after joining UPMC was to try to find out if there was a way that we could get technology involved in in what we did. And, and this was pre-pandemic. Um, I found a company that that uses a smartphone app that might have might help improve outcomes in our in our centers. So, I invited this company to introduce themselves to us and to talk to my staff and to get them to to um, to become. See if see if this was something we could potentially use in the future. We started using the app five years ago, before the pandemic started, and we started enrolling patients um, first. First, when they showed up in cardiac rehab, um, when they came to cardiac rehab and they used the app, they reached higher fitness levels, they lost more weight, they were more likely to quit smoking, they had significantly lower blood pressures at the end of the program than they did when they didn't use the app. So I said, okay, this is a keeper. This is something we need to do. We need to use this app as an adjunct to our program to make it better than what it was. And then I thought, wonder what would happen if we onboard these patients to this app while they're still in the hospital? Would that improve enrollment? So at that time, at the time I started using the app, our enrollment for patients leaving the hospitals that we're involved with um, was about 24%. Better than national, but not great. we started using the app. Our enrollment went, just to average enrollment, went to about 50%. And now when we're onboarding patients in the hospital uh, at bedside before they um, start cardiac rehab, before they leave the hospital, um, our enrollment is 65 to 70%. Of wow. the patients that leave the hospital with the app, those patients start cardiac, 70% of them start cardiac rehab. So amazing, (laughs) amazing results. (laughs) I am just, I'm absolutely blown away. I never, ever expected something this simple to make this significant a difference. Um, and it's, it's, it's really led me to believe Laura that, that there's a lot more that could be done. I've, I've always had, because I was a service line director in the past, that was my main, my role was to look at the continuum of care for cardiac patients from the time they were picked up by an ambulance in the field all the way through to rehabilitation, their cath, their, their their door-to-drug time at first, and then their door-to-intervention time, um, and then I had to I had to study the effectiveness of of their stay in the hospital and how they went through intensive care and how they went through their step down and whether they should be on a monitor or shouldn't be on a monitor and I mean everything in the continuum of care from the time the patients picked up in the field until rehab, I had to I was responsible for for coordinating the continuum of care for the cardiac patient. So, so I sort of get it from from beginning to end, and then I've ha- I've also had a lot of my own medical problems, and and had been a patient, including a cancer survivor, and have had some have had brain surgery, and had some really wild things happen to me. So, both because of my my experience in in secondary prevention, and then the outcomes that I see that we get when we do 
allow patients to participate in their care and take charge of their care to some extent. Um, that if the healthcare system were to shift its focus and just spend a, a considerably more time considering the management of chronic diseases, um, and maybe even in boot camp fashion like we do with cardiac rehab, you just show up for 24 weeks, you get kind of a lifestyle intensive training, and then you re we release you and you do significantly better. So um, you see what I mean? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that makes a lot of sense. And I, I don't think that what I've learned is the power of the person to take care of themselves. Once they're given the tools to kind of overcome the barriers, they they get it maybe for the first time in their life. Um, they take the you, you help them take the guesswork. Like you talk about nutrition, there's just a zillion different things that you can focus on when it comes to nutrition. And every day somebody else is claiming they have the answers and all the answers and everything. It gets so confusing for people that they give up. They just say, I don't really care. Nobody seems to know what the heck they're doing or why. And, and so they stop being concerned about it, stop investigating, stop trying. Or they've tried a bunch of diets that don't work, and so now, they're, now no diet works, and they have this notion. But when they go through a concentrated period of time where they're getting instructions from professionals who know their history and are, have, have, have very directed instructions in terms of what to do and how to do it and when to do it and how long to do it and what to include in your diet and what to eliminate, um, it becomes an entirely different thing. They, they suddenly, the light bulb goes off and they're like, I can do this. I can make this thing happen for myself. And five years later, six years later, 10 years later, they're not doing everything we taught them to do, but they're doing way more than what they had, what they would have otherwise done. And so they just do considerably better from a health outcome standpoint. That's really great to hear. And, you know, it sounds like you've been able to build such an effective program with the cardiac rehab and, you know, integrating the app into that, you know, and, and making sure that people have the opportunity to sign up and really know what they're doing. You know, it sounds like that's just been really, really successful. Now, I'm wondering, how are you thinking about department growth from the administrative side of things? So one of my pro programs right now, um, well, I let me say this, getting the right people in the right places is going to be the biggest challenge for healthcare in the future. I have seen in my career such, it's just an enormous difference in how effectively any part of the, the healthcare system is run based on the person that you have in charge. So if you get if you get somebody who's a, who thinks outside the box, who's willing to challenge the status quo, who's who's enthusiastic about the work they're doing, who who engages their employees, um, uh, who um, you know um, maximizes the use of technologies outside of healthcare, thinks thinks broader than healthcare. Um, then you're going to have a really effective team. You know, you get those kinds of employees, you get those kinds of people involved, um, you're going to be really successful. But if you get people that are always thinking of the why not, you can't do this, and why not, you can't do that, and why not, you can't do this, and there's this policy that says that this is the way things are supposed to go and isn't willing to change the policy, change the practice, change the, the care model, um, then you're going to have stagnancy and, and, and uh, you won't be able to face the challenges of the future. So the first place that I start as a, as a leader is, is in who I hire uh, and how they think. And then um, 
let me see if I can give you an example of kind of how out of the box my thinking is. Um, UPMC is about ready to build a heart and transplant hospital. They um, are building a new a new building with um, a new st- structure and 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 innovating innovating around maybe some changes in the way healthcare is delivered to transplant patients. So I'm meeting next week with one of the people that's coordinating the way in which care is being delivered in the hospital and saying, my one of my first things to say to her is, um, how often does a patient coming into the hospital have to be in bed? Why is the bed in some ways, why is the bed, the fact that the patient's in a room with a bed, become the central way, kind of the, the, kind of the, the uh, paradigm around which care for a patient in the hospital is provided? Probably more than half of our patients, if not three-quarters of our patients, walked into the building before they had the surgery or before they had their whatever it is that they're in there for. Oh, they were fairly highly functioning just a few days before they ended up with uh, the seizure or the thing that they had. And then we're putting them in bed and we're saying, stay in bed while we manage your care. It turns out to be a thing that just is really detrimental to that person's health. The moment we put them in bed and we say, this is where you need to be while we care for you, it is a. It gets into their head that the thing I need to do is rest. The thing I need to do is kind of be be immobile and allow myself, my body, to heal, and and um, that kind of makes sense that I do that. And so they kind of fall into the, yeah, I got to kind of stay here in bed. It turns out all the research says exactly the opposite. That the that the the thing to do when a patient comes to the hospital if they cannot not get out of bed is to keep them out of bed. To get them out of bed as often as possible. To be them as mobile as possible maybe even to keep them in as good a shape as they were in when they came in, uh, as long as there's not significant limitations on the, on the, by virtue of what it is that they've been through, like incisions and, and or orthopedic issues that you can't move a certain part of the body. Um, but most patients are not in that situation when they can't move. They just are told not to move or they're just positioned in a bed because it's easier to do all the work that the nurse needs to do around the bed. Um, so my vision for this hospital is an inpatient fitness center so that when a patient comes into the hospital, they have, uh, they have every patient who's diagnosed with a chronic disease that is likely to lead to transplant gets an, a, at least a tutorial on the benefits of physical fitness as, as a thing they need to, do, to consider and, and perhaps do to um, make it more likely for them to live until they get a transplant, recover from the transplant surgery itself when they get a transplant, and then live with the transplant for the next 10 or 15 years if they have a transplant. And if they know from the very beginning, fitness plays an absolutely vital role in all phases of your life for the rest of your life. So whether you have liver disease, you have kidney disease, you have heart disease, or you have lung disease that's going to lead to a transplant in one of those four organs, that one of the most important things for you to consider in your life and recovery and health for the future is fitness. Do you see where I'm going with this? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So create just... create an entirely different paradigm around which that person who's who's now faced with a chronic condition that's going to lead to transplant, and then you measure the outcomes associated with that new paradigm. I want to know that if I do this, if I give a tutorial, if I if I to a liver transplant patient who's got end stage liver disease, if more of them live until they get a transplant. 
And then if I keep them in shape every time they come to the hospital, have a little little visit with them each time they come in for the next liver flare-up that they have, taking into account hepatic pressures and all the things associated with liver function and, and exercise, um, I then can, while the patient's in the hospital, getting treated for, for, for the flare-up in their liver function, they still stay in shape. Whatever shape they were when they came in, they're going to leave the hospital in that good a shape, maybe better. And if that just becomes the the kind of a central part of what happens with our transplant community, instead of a tangential thing, we're just going to get much more significantly better outcomes. <laughs> so anyway, that's how I think. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that would be quite a paradigm shift and really you know, create a different type of culture around that that type of care and procedures, transplants, and what it means to be in the hospital and a patient in the hospital. So, I, you know, I think that sounds like a fantastic way to be moving um, your organization and really a, a change that would be so helpful, it sounds like, to patient care. Yeah. And I don't know whether it would be, but I'd love to try it. <laughs> but seriously, I mean, my goal in meeting with the person I'm meeting with next week as we create the paradigm for the future is to, if not the whole hospital, a section of the hospital where this becomes the paradigm, let's test it, let's try it, let's see what the outcomes are associated with it. And then if it if it is is, is likely to make improvements in outcomes as I think it will be, then let's uh, let the world know that this is a much better approach. Fantastic. Uh, before we wrap up our conversation, Jonathan, I was wondering, do you have any other career advice for emerging leaders today? Yeah, I guess it's kind of along the lines of what I've, what I've said. Just because it's been done that way most of the time in the past doesn't make it the way things should necessarily be done in the future. Um, I just think we, I think as healthcare leaders, we just need to be constantly thinking of maybe this could be done like this. Nobody, nobody dreamed we would ever reach a time in history when, you know, 60% of our patients who are being seen by a doctor would be seen um, virtually or whatever the number is now that we're seeing. You know, nobody would have ever dreamed that that would have happened just a couple of years ago, but the, but the circumstances forced us to look at things differently and I would just say, I don't think we should need circumstances to make us think differently. I think we should just be always looking for opportunities to think differently about the way we provide care. And if we know that there might be a better way to provide care, test it, measure it, see whether it works better, and then make it, make it, uh, make it the way we do things in the future. Jonathan, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. This has been a really great discussion, and I look forward to connecting with you again soon. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Laura. Thanks for having me.